Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Jacinta Delhaes and Dr. Daniel Kunima. Each episode, we will be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Welcome to episode 39, everyone. Today we are speaking with Dr. Miriam Nyamai from the University of Cape Town. <laughs> and uh, you spoke to Miriam, right? I did, yeah. Miriam is working on studying thermonuclear eruptions, not thermonuclear explosions, thermonuclear eruptions of stars. We do love a good thermonuclear explosion, though. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds pretty dramatic. I should point out quickly that I do have a, a bit of a cold, so apologies for the nasal sounding, or more nasal than usual. It's not COVID, though. It's not COVID. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just the beauty of having small children ah, who yes. make you sick. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, therm thermonuclear explosions, I mean, it sounds incredibly dramatic, and it is, I, I guess. <laughs> yes, thermonuclear eruptions, though. Eruptions, of yes. my apologies. No, I kept getting it wrong when I was speaking to Miriam, so she corrected me a few times. So what we're talking about today is something called a nova, which is different to a supernova. It's kind of like the precursor, the thing that comes before. And what it is, is a, it's a white dwarf, which is the evolved remnant of a star that's similar to our sun. So the sun will get old, will grow into a red giant, puff out, and then eventually it will let go of all of its outer layers. And what's there in the end is, is the solid carbon core, which we call a white dwarf. But sometimes stars can be born in binary with another star. And when this happens, one star might turn into a white dwarf first, and then the other star will maybe grow into a red giant. And when that happens, some of the material from the outer layers of the red giant can start to accrete onto the white dwarf. And that means that the layers are pulled off the red giant and sort of orbit around and then fall onto the surface of the white dwarf. But there's kind of like a mass limit that goes on. And so sometimes these, these layers that are kind of getting accreted onto the white dwarf can suddenly erupt in a thermonuclear explosion. That's called a nova. So that's what Miriam is talking about. So basically the, the white dwarf is cannibalizing its its brother or sister and devouring its its outer layers. And then that adds mass to the white dwarf, which occasionally causes some eruptions off the surface, which we can observe. Yeah, so the outer layers kind of detonate a bit. And then, yeah, we can observe these kind of quote-unquote, smaller eruptions. It's not exactly cannibalizing. It's just kind of like taking a sip of the outer layers. But then what can happen is if it accumulates enough mass, there, so there's like these little little novas, well, they're not that small, but the smaller novas going off the eruptions, and then Miriam is studying these novas to figure out whether or not she thinks these systems are going to go supernova. So these systems can explode in supernova explosions, but there are a specific type called type 1A supernova. And that means it's when the white dwarf itself completely detonates, the entire thing is destroyed. So when it gets, when there's enough um, material from the red giant accreted onto the white dwarf, 
it can reach a mass limit called the Chandrasekhar limit. And when that happens, the whole white dwarf explodes and destroys itself in, in this type 1a supernova. So Miriam's looking at different kind of binary systems, three different systems, and figuring out whether or not she thinks they are going to explode. She calls these progenitors. So the white dwarf with the nova going to form is the progenitor of the type 1a supernova. All right. Well, we, we probably shouldn't steal all of Miriam's thunder or thermonuclear eruption. Um, we... <laughs> oh, come on. I had to. <laughs> okay. I'll give you that one. Oh, my goodness. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, uh, let, let's, let's hear from Miriam and we can discuss more after. All right. Let's hear from Miriam. With us today is Dr. Miriam Nyamai from the University of Cape Town. Welcome, Miriam. Thank you. Thank you, Jacinta. Hi. Great to have you with us. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Right. So I am pro, I'm a Sarayo postdoctoral fellow at the University of Cape Town, and I work as part of the Thundercat team. I grew up in Makueni, Kenya, which is in Eastern Province. It's around 100 kilometers from Nairobi on your way to Mombasa, which is a coastal city. I did my undergraduate degree in at Kenyatta University in Kenya, and I did my postgraduate studies in South Africa at University of Cape Town and University of the Free State. Great. And you have just finished your PhD. Yes, yes. I completed my PhD this year before I started the postdoctoral fellowship at the same university. Great. That's amazing. What a what an amazing achievement. PhDs are just so hard to, you know, get across the finish line. So well done for getting there. Thank you. Thank you. It, it's indeed a difficult task. You have to have positive energy and you have to persevere. How did it feel? It felt like a, quite a journey. It was not easy. Sometimes you, you feel like you can do this. Sometimes you feel like, ah, what am I doing? But in the end, if you keep going, you, you don't lose hope, you just keep going. And in the end, it feels very nice to finish, to complete, actually. It feels very, it, it's, it feels like a very good achievement. Amazing. So you haven't actually had your graduation ceremony yet. So technically not doctor, but I'm going to promote you because by the time this comes out, maybe you already will be. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's, it's, yeah, my graduation is not, I've not done my graduation yet, but hopefully it's coming up soon. Yeah, I mean, by the time you submit the thesis, you've already done the work, so you've already earned it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Is there much astronomy happening in Kenya? Yes, not much, but at least there's a few groups that are really doing great work. There's one in Technical University of Kenya that is led by Professor Paul Baki. And then there's Dr. Willis Obonyo, who did his PhD in University of Leeds in the UK. He's also a part of, he's very instrumental in the group. And there are also a few other people who are doing great work in Kenya. There is Dr. Hashim, who is in, in Kenyatta University. He's, he did his PhD in astroparticle physics. He's supervising students in astronomy as well. So there's at least something going on in Kenya, and that's, that's just very encouraging. Wonderful, a growing community. Yes. Um, what got you interested in astronomy in the first place? To be honest, I wasn't interested in astronomy. I was interested in mathematics. Ah, Yes, so my mathematics was my favorite from primary school to high school level to university level. I was I was really I really liked mathematics, 
But when I heard about the National Astrophysics and Space Science Program, which was hosted at the University of Cape Town, and about astronomy and astrophysics and space science, so I got quite interested and, and applied for the program. And when I joined, I never looked back. I was like, this is amazing. I, I want to keep going, yeah. So you were hooked. I was hooked. I yeah. was I was definitely <laughs> hooked. Um, and I liked the idea of observations with telescopes. I liked the idea of computer programming. And I liked the idea of a physics and mathematics background. Like it's all coming together in one course. And that was amazing for me. That was a, the right jump. Great. So tell us a little bit about what was your PhD research about or what, what topic were you working on? Uh, so I was working on radio observations of thermonuclear eruptions, to be specific. My PhD work was purely at radio wavelengths, and I got to use Miakat telescope, which is in Karoo, in South Africa. It's an amazing telescope. I love it. And I also observed with the very large array in New Mexico in the USA. So that was also a very good experience. I got to work with people and experts leading in the field, uh, Professor Laura Chumuk in, uh, at the University of Michigan, sorry, Michigan State University. And I also worked with Dr. Valerio Ribeiro, who is based in Portugal. And I also worked with Professor Patrick Vaut, which is the HOD at the University of Cape Town Astronomy Department. They amazing, very bright. They, they shared their wisdom with so much patience. And I was grateful that I, I got to work with them. Amazing. You got to work with the VLA as well, the Very Large Array. Did you? How do you observe with that? Is it just online or do you actually have to go there to Socorro? The setup is very similar to the Miakat telescope. So you write a proposal and you request observations and they do the observations for you and then you get to look at the data. So it's, it's, it's very similar to the Miakat setup. All right, awesome. And so what were you looking at? You, you said that you study thermonuclear explosions. Now, I don't have any idea what that is, so let's let's talk about that. Was there a particular object you were looking at or what were you observing? Yes, so for my PhD, I looked at three thermonuclear eruptions. So explosions is a term that is used for the supernova, the supernova where the white dwarf, the compact object, is completely destroyed. So, so that is an explosion. But an eruption... Sorry, if I could just interrupt you there to ask. So a white dwarf, this is the core of a dead medium-sized or small-sized star, right? Correct. That is correct. And it can sometimes be have a companion star, so it can be like a binary orbiting another star. Is that right? That is correct, yes. So so you have a white dwarf, which is a, the compact object is quite dense and is a, sort of a dead star in quotes, like you said, and then the, it's in close orbit with a secondary star. Now, for my thesis, I considered three types of, not types really, but I looked at three different types of companion stars. So I looked at a helium, a helium star, which was a companion of a compact object, a white dwarf, and I looked at, red, at a red giant, and I looked at a main sequence star. So the monuclear eruptions occur in all these types of systems, and I looked at those three types of systems for my PhD. Okay, so what's the difference between a main sequence star, a helium star, and a red giant? Right. So a main sequence star is not evolved. It's a less, I mean, it's not that evolved. It's, it's, a, it's just a normal star. Like our sun, right? Yes, correct. And then a red giant is quite evolved. 
Okay, so this is uh, like further on in its lifetime. Yes, that is further on in its lifetime, correct. And then a helium star, okay, so those two contain, mostly they contain hydrogen, but a helium star does not contain hydrogen. It contains helium. Why doesn't it contain hydrogen? I think it's more to do with its evolution. The mechanism of evolution is slightly different from the hydrogen star, yes. Okay, so a helium star doesn't ha- isn't dominated by hydrogen, it's dominated by helium. Correct. And then you said that all three of these companions can cause thermonuclear explosions for the white dwarf. How does that happen? So it's very similar mechanism, not similar, but it's the same. It's only that the accretion or the mass transferring process is slightly different. But a thermonuclear eruption occurs when the mass from the companion star is extensively accreted on the surface of the white dwarf. So stuff is being pulled from this companion star, the main sequence or the helium star or red giant, onto the white dwarf, right? Correct, yes. And when that happens, the material accumulates. And as it accumulates, the temperature and the pressure increases, and that increases the nuclear reactions. And when that happens, the nuclear reactions keep on increasing. Then there's now what we call the thermonuclear eruption, where the outer layers of that white dwarf are expelled out into space. But the white dwarf is still there. It's not destroyed. It's just the outer layers that are expelled into into space of the surface of the white dwarf. So stuff is falling onto this white dwarf. It's it's pulling off material from the companion star. It's all landing on the surface. It's getting more and more, and there's thermonuclear reactions going on. And then all of a sudden, it detonates, right? And the outer layers of the of the white dwarf are just blown off, blown apart. Correct. Yes, correct. And this is the thermonuclear explosion. Yes, that is correct. Yeah, that is how it happens basically. And why is it interesting to look at that? Right. So. There's very many things that I was interested in when I was studying these systems, but there are two things that I was mainly interested in, and one is how to determine, I mean, the amount of the ejected mass or the amount that is blown off the surface of the white dwarf, and number two is how to to try and study the mass loss mechanism of these systems, either the mass loss or the mass, uh, the accretion process or the, the process in which the mass is pulled on, onto the white dwarf. So those are the three main things that, that encouraged me to look at these systems. Okay, and you looked at them with radio telescopes. Why did you do that? Correct. So I looked at them with radio telescopes. It's because radio telescopes, of course, they complement the other wavelengths. Of course, they've been studied in multi-wavelength, but they complement that. And the one thing about the radio is that they give us the opportunity to study the emission mechanism. So there are two main mechanisms that are often present in this system. There's the synchrotron emission and the free-free emission. And if you model the free-free emission from these systems, then you can determine the amount of mass ejected from the white dwarf. If you study in the, the synchrotron emission from these systems, then you can determine the mass loss, how the mass is lost from the companion star. Okay, so there's two types of radio emission coming from this, this system. So if you look at one of those types, you can detect how much mass was lost from the white dwarf. And then if you look at the other type, you can study how much mass was lost from the the, the big companion star and like accreted onto the white dwarf, right? Correct. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
The reason we are interested is because the connection between the thermonuclear eruptions and the type 1A supernovae is those two things. The, the rate of accretion, the rate the mass is pulled onto the white dwarf, and the, the amount of mass that is ejected from the white dwarf after the thermonuclear eruption. So it's the link between the two. Okay. And this is what determines whether it is or it isn't classified as a type 1A supernova? Correct. Okay. Yes. So as it is at the moment, why isn't it already a type 1A supernova? Okay, so there are some clues why it can be, but I think it's it's still we're still looking at it. We're still looking at the links. We are trying to see if the white dwarf can still maintain enough mass to grow in mass um, because it has to, to grow to a certain, to what we call the Chantraseca limit. Okay, so what is a type 1A supernova? Uh, so type 1A supernova, it's an explosion, a thermonuclear explosion that destroys the, the white dwarf completely. Ah, so you're saying that these thermonuclear eruptions, they're just like little detonations going off on the top or, or yes. on the surface of the white dwarf. Correct. And so this system could be a progenitor, meaning something that is going to evolve into a type 1A supernova, which is when suddenly there's so much mass built up on the surface of the white dwarf that it detonates so violently that the entire white dwarf is destroyed. Correct. Okay, so these little like thermonuclear eruption they're kind of like the the death warnings of the white dwarf yes okay yes, okay cool. sort of warning us can it be can it not be yes okay 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 cool so you're looking at um these systems with a radio telescope so what did you find they were quite interesting i found that there's a lot to study so i got an opportunity to determine the mass loss the amount of mass that is ejected from one of the systems then I, I estimated the amount of mass that is lost from the companion star for another system. And then the, for the helium nova, I got to determine that the mass loss in the helium nova is not as straightforward as people think. So there are clues of complexities in the mass loss of the system. Okay, so things were fairly straightforward for the system where the companion star was a main sequence and where it was a a red giant, but it was a bit more complicated when there was helium star, right? So they, they were sort of straightforward where the, the main sequence, I mean, the, the companion star was the main sequence. There were little, a few clues where the, the companion star was the red giant. It was also not that straightforward. There's complexities there, but there's definitely more complexities when for the helium nova, when the companion star was, was the helium nova, yeah. And why, why do you think that is? Um, I think it's we we need more computational or hydrodynamic simulations to be able to give more insights in that, because I did more observations. I did I, my my PhD was mostly observational, but I think the hydrodynamic simulations using our our results they can even uncover more on what's going on there in the mass loss. Okay, so you found that there's, uh, you found something new. You found that this system is more complicated than we thought, which means that when we're trying to simulate the system, so like reproduce it in a computer, there's more complicated physics that we have to introduce in order to, to reproduce the system. And so this is telling us that there's new physics to be discovered, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Wow, cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was very cool. How did it feel when you found that? It was very exciting. Actually, for the one system where there were, uh, we have the white dwarf and the helium star, it has been published in monthly notices. And I'm really hoping 
that because uh, astronomers tend to link the helium nova with uh, type one a progeny, I mean type one a supernovae, but I think they first we first need to see the complexity of the mass loss before that can be simulated. So I'm really looking forward to those type of simulations. So that was very exciting. Yeah, and then for the red giant white dwarf binary system, we also noticed that there there is also complexities in the way the mass loss is happening. So I'm also looking forward to that as well. Okay, so you start. So you're going to be working on following up both of those systems. Yes, yes, I will definitely work on following up on on those if I can get. I mean, I'm really excited. There are people who are doing hydrodynamic simulations on that. So that's that's really exciting to see how it unfolds. Okay, cool. So you'll be following that very closely, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and what else are you doing as part of your postdoctoral research now at the University of Cape Town? Is it the same work or is it slightly different? It's a combination. So it's it's thermonuclear eruptions with Miakat. At the moment, we're closely following a nova, a recurrent nova, which is a white dwarf and a red giant that went into outburst again. Oh, yes, with Miakat, with Professor Patrick Vaut as well. So that is very exciting. It's it's it it went off again fifteen years ago, in February two thousand and six, and it has gone off again in August two thousand and twenty. I mean twenty twenty one. So is it actually quite rare for us to see the same object go nova more than once? Yes, I think it's it's rare. They they quite they they are just a few that have been studied. And this object has been studied quite extensively and it's very interesting. Everybody, I mean, people are really interested in it. So I'm looking forward to what uh, Miakat is going to do for this object. It's it's amazing. So it was found, it went off again earlier this year, was it? No, no, it went off in on Sunday last week. Whoa! I mean, this Sunday. What? <laughs> wow! <laughs> yeah, so it went into a, an eruption this Sunday. And we, we got some meerkat observations. We have some results at the moment, and it's, it's really exciting. Oh, hot <laughs> off the press. This is amazing. <laughs> it is. Um, but they, uh, so I do thermonuclear eruptions like that system. I'm now trying to venture into radio transients with Thundercat. Thundercat, have, they have a very amazing working group there, so I'm looking forward to that. Wonderful. So what's Thundercat and what's a transient? I think you've talked about Thundercat before. So Thundercat studies radio transients, basically, where um, where something appears in the sky or it's visible and then it's not. But then they focus on studying this transient at radio wavelengths. But I'm very sure you've covered this in your uh, in your podcast before. So. Yes, we've talked to um, Patrick Vout, who's one of the PIs of Thundercat, and we've spoken to Michelle Lochner, who also works on related to transients with the Vera C. Rubin telescope. And uh, great. So you've just gotten on board with, with looking at transients. So you'll be, well, how do you search for a transient? Do you like just look at the data and compare it to from one day to another? Yes, that is basically it. Of course, there's statistics involved. You look at one image that was observed like for example today and another day you compare those two and see if there's variability in the radio and then if there is variability then you can follow up with other wavelengths or you can monitor it for a long time so yeah i was just going to ask what do you do when you find something new yes so so you monitor it for a long time see what type of variability it is if it's um it's days or years or months 
or you could also look at it with other wavelengths and determine what it is because radio transients are very new so not much is known about radio transients we don't some some of the radio transients are not even identified what they are so so you could do a multi wavelength study to see what what exactly it's this type of system and then once you do that like what i do is i do modeling then to determine other physical parameters because when a radio transient goes off then there's a lot of energy that is released into into the universe so that can give us an uh, an opportunity to study that radio uh, that phenomena which we we don't know Okay, so we've got like lots of things kind of like bursting in the sky, which we're picking up with radio telescopes. Some of them like get bright and then faint and then bright and then faint again. Some of them just are bright and then go away forever. And so you're saying that we've only just recently found out that there are radio transients and we don't really know what each of them are. So that's part of the fun, right? Yes, yes. And then the fact that big telescopes are coming up, there's the SKA coming up. So I'm very sure they will pick up a lot of those. Some of the radio transients are fairly known. I think like the AGN, You, I'm very sure you know what's an AGN. <laughs> I think that's your field. <laughs> yes, yes. We've talked about uh, a active galactic nuclei before, so radio galaxies with black holes in the centres. Yes, yes. So that is, I think, mostly is those. But there are other f- new phenomena that big telescopes or modern telescopes like Miyakara are picking up and we don't know yet what they are. So that's like, very exciting. And the more you do the more, like the big service, the LSPs, the more they look into, into the universe, the more we tend to find these systems. So it's exciting time. Wow, yes, that's so exciting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, awesome. Thank you, Miriam. Um, is there, before we go, is there anything else you'd like to talk about or any messages you have for our listeners? All right. So I think I've really been lucky to to study at the University of Cape Town and, and to do a lot of international collaborations. So I think if some people or students are, are interested in astronomy and science, I think if somebody gets an opportunity, then they should they should go for it. It's very exciting with the new telescopes coming up. I, I'm very lucky to work with Miakat and I'm looking forward to the SKA. Yeah, things in Southern Africa are getting pretty exciting in radio astronomy. Yes, yes, they are. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Miriam, for joining us. And if our listeners would like to follow you, are you on social media anywhere? Yes, I am on Twitter and I'm on Facebook. Twitter, I think it's Miriam MN and same as Facebook. My username is Miriam MN. I upload a lot of um, science stuff as well. I'm also on Instagram. Wonderful. Cool. So we'll um, put the links to those on our, on our website for this episode. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for joining us, Miriam. It's great to chat with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that. I mean, first time I heard it, so very interesting and I get the feeling we talk about binary stars quite regularly and I mean do you have any feeling for how common binary systems are? I think that they're actually the most common. I think that the sun is a bit of an anomaly like that it's much rarer for a star to be on its own. I wonder if that was like a factor of life forming here. I don't know how life forming in a binary system would be different to to single. I guess the the one thing about these binary systems and why we do observe them so regularly and study them is that they are 
pretty active. They, they're doing these little eruptions and sometimes they go supernova and whatever. They're quite dynamic and interesting systems, whereas a, a star like our sun is pretty boring, really. Yeah, I mean, again, that I think that's sort of like why we exist is that we have a very stable environment. Our sun doesn't do anything fancy. Our star is quite, you know, inactive, really. So I think it would be difficult if you were on a planet living around one of these binary star systems. You'll have, you know, one of them grows older before the other one. So you've got this red giant problem where, you know, the temperature is going to change and, and the star might even gobble you up. And then even if you survive that, then you've got these eruptions going off all the time, these nova where, you know, stuff is getting pulled onto your other, like your one of your dead stars. And, you know, havoc is going on all the time. It would be very hard for life just to, just to chill <laughs> for a while there. <laughs> We digress, but we've spoken about exoplanets before, but we should we should find someone to talk about how life evolves. Yes, clearly we <laughs> don't know. know much about that, so we should. We should do that. <laughs> Maybe not how life evolves, but how astronomically life evolves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We did speak with Avina van Dishoek in episode 20, Cosmic Chemistry. She speaks a little bit about finding the molecules that can eventually produce life. And Miriam also talks about transients, just to, to jump topic again. So she works with the Thundercat survey on the Meerkat telescope. And we did hear about that in episode 23, when we talked to Professor Patrick Vout, who is the PI of that project. So if you want to learn more about that, you can check out episode 23. And of course, episode 37, the one that came before this, we, we spoke with Michelle Lochner, all about transients as well, but more with the Vera C. Rubin optical telescope rather than Meerkat, and how she uses AI to try and study these sorts of things. It was pretty cool. I mean, the, we've spoken about Thundercat before, as you said, and the idea with Thundercat is to pick up these transients. So it's not a an observational campaign like you do when you want to study a particular galaxy or a particular patch of sky. Thundercat is looking for things that go bump in the night uh, all the time. And as, you know, Miriam mentioned, she observed something just the other day. So you're getting kind of Live feedback uh, with this kind of work, which is... Yeah, that was so cool, <laughs> like hot off the press. Like there's, you know, I mean, our lifetimes are so short compared to what's going on in space that it's really exciting to um, see the same object go Nova twice in one lifetime. You know, these things are going off, quote unquote, all the time, but on longer timescales than we can observe. So this is actually really unique and really cool to to be able to see it. Yeah, it's great. And also just, uh, I mean, to mention, great that we are, are getting astronomy growing. You know, she mentioned a little bit about astronomy in Kenya and how it's it's not very big, but training up people from, from around the continent who often, I think, will go back and, and grow th that astronomy in their home countries. I'm not sure where Miriam will end up or would like to end up, but there, there is a chance that she ends up back in Kenya and the astronomy community in Kenya grows. Yeah, shout out to all our Kenyan listeners. I know we've got a few, so hello to you all. Well, I think that's it for today. It's like a short, sharp and shiny episode. So thank you very much for listening and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Cosmic Savannah. You can visit our website, thecosmicsavannah.com 
We will have the transcript, links and other stuff related to today's episode. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Cosmic Savannah. That's Savannah spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. Special thanks today to Dr. Miriam Nyamai for speaking with us. Thanks to our social media manager, Sumari Hatting. Also to Mark Allnut for music production, Jacob Fine for sound editing, Mihal Wercek for photography, Carl Jones for astrophotography, and Susie Karras for graphic design. We gratefully acknowledge support from the South African National Research Foundation, the South African Astronomical Observatory, and the University of Cape Town Astronomy Department. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate it if you could rate and review us and recommend us to a friend. We'll speak to you next time on the Cosmic Savannah. Do you think we got a sufficient blooper in there? Or do you want to say something ridiculous? <laughs> uh.